This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, April 6, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Cannabis holds some promise as a way to address opioid overdoses. What that actually looks like in practice isn't yet clear. Adrienne Wilson-Poe is a neuroscientist who studies the ability of cannabis to enhance the pain-relieving effects of opioids while minimizing their dangerous side effects. She's an instructor at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. What do we know about how opioids work? What do we know about how opioids work? We It's a complicated question, but we actually know quite a lot. We've been studying opioids for a very long time. All of my mentors were you know, deeply embedded in the opioid um, field, both for pain relief and for, on the addiction side of things. Um, so we understand opioids quite a lot. We understand their basic pharmacology, how they interact with their receptors inside of our body. We have long-term studies about them. Um, so, so we do understand understand quite a lot about them. When I was out in uh, Seattle not long ago, I saw several billboards throughout the city. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but each of them said to some extent or to something to the effect of uh, states that have legalized marijuana have lower rates of opioid addiction. How fair is that statement? Well, that's a tricky question. I don't know if the, if cannabis reduces opioid addiction, but it certainly appears to reduce opioid overdose. So there are a number of studies that have come out that have shown that in states with cannabis laws, that there are on average 23% fewer ER visits for non-fatal opioid overdoses. And then also there's a really landmark study in 2014, Bachhuber, that demonstrated that a state with a medical cannabis cannabis law, on average, has a reduction in fatal opioid overdoses um, by, by about 25%. So maybe maybe that's the billboard that you saw. Um, now, that result has been validated by uh, a team at Columbia University in the School of Public Health, and they use a different analysis method, but really came to the same conclusion and showed that states with medical cannabis laws, there are fewer opioid overdoses, whether they're fatal or non-fatal. Why might that be, uh, based on your research? Um, this that question, wh- why is it that cannabis is keeping people alive? That's precisely why I keep doing my research is because that's that's a really I think that's probably the most fundamental question, public health question of my generation. Um, so I, I think that there are a number of really complex things involved here. Right. First, we have why are people using opioids to begin with? And it's because they are pain relievers. So if people have an alternative pain reliever and we know that cannabis has, you know, readily been used by human beings for pain relief for 5,000 years. So if we have a safer, less addictive, less harmful, non-lethal, pain-relieving alternative, that would probably be a natural choice for some people. They, they already don't like using opioids for pain relief because they come with so many negative side effects, not just the lethal ones. Um, So I think that there's probably a strong argument that pain relief itself is probably causing this. Uh, There are also probably a number of other factors in there. You know, people might get cut off from their prescription supply of opioids and turn to the only other tools that they have available. Cannabis is very readily available and it is relatively cheap for a lot of people. Uh, so there could be some other socio and economic factors, but I really do think that um, pain relief is a, is a major, major driver. What should, how, what should policymakers do with this information? 
Well, the the first thing I would say is that from a harm reduction perspective, it makes a lot of sense to do something that is non-lethal. Cannabis is not perfect. It's not perfect for everyone. It does carry some inherent risks. Those risks are greater for certain people. However, if we look at what is the relative harm of this compared to the relative harm of the tools that we're already using, I think there's a very natural argument that this is a safer alternative than opioids and some other pharmaceuticals such as benzodiazepines. You know, we don't often talk about how many benzodiazepine overdoses we have in this country because it's completely occluded or over shadowed by the opioids, but these are also dangerous drugs that people also readily substitute with cannabis. Um, so I, th I think for regulators, the important thing is to look at what, what am I trying to do for my constituents? And I think that keeping them alive so that they can continue voting is probably a good thing. Um, but also, I think it's important to keep watching the evidence. So there are a lot of claims out there that cannabis is this, you know, cure-all for so many things. And there's, you know, finally now, there's lobbyists getting involved who are telling a really compelling story about the economics of cannabis legalization, and those arguments might carry a lot of weight. But I, I think it's really fundamentally important that we not jump to any premature conclusions and be um, really judicious um, in this approach, albeit from a harm reduction perspective. So I, I think that there is a nice moderate road for, um, for you know, policymakers to, to carry out here um, in that, you know, we, we don't we don't necessarily have to just, you know, let the doors fly open and on, on the dispensary and have cannabis flowing free in the streets. Um, but at the same time, we don't have to put this chokehold on it um, and continue the, the mistakes that we have made in all these years of prohibition. Right. If you watch even just how CBD has been marketed, uh, some caution is certainly due uh, in trying to uh, establish a set of agreed upon facts about cannabis versus opioids. Yes. And I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of public misunderstanding. Um, and, and it's not entirely their fault because there's a lot of misunderstanding from the professionals as well. Let's think about 85% of our you know, medical school graduates get all the way through med school and fellowship and residency and have zero education whatsoever about the endogenous cannabinoid system or how cannabis interacts with the human body. So it, it's not necessarily the public's fault that there's so much misinformation out there. The other problem that we have is that we keep referring to cannabis as one thing, cannabis as an opioid alternative, cannabis as an exit drug from the opioid crisis. However, cannabis is not one thing ever, even if you have an identical genetic clone that's grown in two different growing conditions, by the time those flowers grow up and make it all the way through the laboratory testing process, they end up having very, very different ingredients. This plant is incredibly sensitive to its growing conditions. And so we, we really need to think of it as not one therapy or not one drug, but one delivery system for hundreds of biologically active molecules. There are at least 114 different cannabinoids. There are scores of terpenes and flavonoids and alkaloids and aldehydes and all these other things that interact with the human body. 
Now, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that when all of those things are consumed together, it creates a more buffered and nuanced effect that protects a a patient from the negative side effects of high doses of THC. Um, But but we also need to come into this with the knowledge that we have a lot of work to do to be able to determine what kinds of cannabis are there, what are the different combinations of molecules that are possible, and which of those combinations is the most effective for which people and for which conditions, because there's also an element of personalization. My endogenous cannabinoid system is much different than the endogenous cannabinoid system of anyone else around me. This is a a very much personalized, titrated approach to, to medicine. If you had one change to make to a federal policy that would uh, give us or at least deliver in some way a lot of new information about cannabis and its potential for uh, helping address the opioid crisis, what would it be? The number one barrier to public health and to cannabis research is cannabis's status as a Schedule I prohibited substance. Can- there is so much rationale for it to be completely removed from the Controlled Substances Act entirely. Um, but I could also see, again, a moderate approach where it could be descheduled uh, or rescheduled, rather, to something like a Schedule Three drug. Yes, there is some risk for um, tolerance and dependence and misuse, but that risk is far, far lower than it is for alcohol, which is not a controlled substance at all. The prolonged effects of alcohol consumption are extremely deleterious, and the prolonged effects of cannabis appear to be much more nuanced. Um, again, this is, you know, we, ha- we have a lot more work to do to, to really understand the, the long-term impacts of daily cannabis use. Um, but we're never going to be able to do phase three clinical trials in this country until schedule one goes away. We need a source to get high-quality, medical-grade cannabis that is reflective of what people can actually get their hands on at a medical dispensary. And the current you know, infrastructure means that the only place we can get cannabis is from NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And that cannabis, statistically, looks nothing like the rest of the cannabis in the world. So in order for us to be able to have accurate conclusions about what real-world cannabis does for patients and other people who consume it, we need to be able to get rid of the federal barriers to conducting research, getting access to those products, um, and, and, and getting access to biomedical research funding. You know, I am very unique in that the federal government has funded my work, but only through the back door of understanding drug abuse through the National Institute on Drug Abuse. No one else who's interested in the medical benefits of cannabis is able to do this. You know, the, the people who are interested in understanding its benefits for fighting cancer or Crohn's disease or, you know, many of these other disorders, they don't have the back door that I have. How interested are state policymakers generally? Because if you talk about uh, emergency room visits for uh, in states where marijuana has been legalized versus states where it is uh, fully illegal, uh, you know, how closely are they following that? What do they want to know? 
You know, there's a huge, huge amount of variability right now, right? So, you know, for instance, um, I, I work really closely with Earl Blumenauer in Oregon, and he's got his finger on the pulse. They're extremely interested in this. But I've also spent my time in Jefferson City in the State House in Missouri, and there is a lot of resistance to it. Um, so, you know, the political climate and the uh, scope of the opioid epidemic and um, the resources, the other available resources for fighting opioid over overdoses. All of those things are huge contributing factors in this variability. Um, I would say the one thing that all policymakers have in common is that everyone wants to protect their constituents. Everyone wants to protect the children in, in their districts. And what is, the, what is the most sensible approach at protecting our children? People have different opinions about that approach. Um, my opinion is based on evidence, um, which is that cannabis is a very safe and effective tool to combat opioid use disorder and you know, opioid dependence. Adrian Wilson-Poe is a neuroscientist and instructor at the Washington University School of Medicine. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Harm Reduction Conference last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.